Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Lee Steinberg is probably one of the most notable agents in sports history. But what he wants to talk about is the fact that he's got more than a decade sober. He is often credited as the inspiration for the movie Jerry Maguire. He represented eight number one overall NFL draft picks. It's just the list is unbelievable. And now today he represents probably the best football player on the planet in Pat Mahomes. But in between all that, there was the addiction and the bottoming out. Like a lot of alcoholics, Lee ended up back at his parents' house drinking vodka around the clock. But then he got sober. And this is a guy that goes to any lengths to get sober. And he still is extremely committed today in the 12-step program. Uh, this guy's unbelievable. I can't believe he gave me the time. He actually gave me hope when I was in a halfway house. His uh, story came on HBO Real Sports. Uh, he was about two years sober. And that's how we start off the conversation. But I was just thrilled to be able to chat with Lee Steinberg. And uh, this guy is beyond the real deal and beyond inspiring. It's it's an incredible story. Could definitely be a movie. Uh, we cover it all. But first, Kevin Souza. No covers by him. All original content. Stand by the ocean floor. I, I want to start by uh, when I was, I'd hit bottom, and I was I was living literally in a, in a, in a halfway house in a recovery house. So I was sober about a month. And your story with Armin Katayan came on uh, the HBO Real Sports story. And for mm-hmm. for me at that time, your sobriety and the fact you put yourself out there really charged me up. And uh, you know, so I want to thank you for that. The, the point of this podcast is talking about sobriety and, and people like you putting yourself out there, breaking the stigma and making people like me feel like, hey, I can do If Lee Steinberg was there, you know, I can do it. I'm happy that 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 helped you. I, I just have always felt like um, it, people suffer in private. You know, they suffer and they're hopeless and helpless and and think they're the only one and the only way to really help other people is to let them know that they're not alone and there is there are programs and there can be light at the end of the tunnel by the way is it weird for you that jerry Maguire 25 years ago in this december yes it in some ways it seems like very distant and in other ways it seems like yesterday and uh, that's been 25 years of people running up to me in airports and uh, coming to my dinner table, asking me to say four words or saying them to me that start with, show me the money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, is, that, is that something you welcome? If you go out in public, um, you're going to meet people and, and you're going to interact with them and, you better be gracious and you better, um, um, you know, embrace the moment. They might be somebody interesting you'd like to meet. How often uh, do people come up to you and talk to you about the fact that you've been open about your sobriety? All the time. Um, and uh, it actually sort of depends how I'm dressed. <laughs> if you look the way you look on television, then um, people will come up and uh, if you're just sort of uh, fitting in the crowd, then you just go ahead and live your life. But um, it, uh, look, we live this short moment on the planet. And so the question is, how are we going to spend that time? I was brought up by a father who believed that two core values were incredibly important outside of spiritual ones. And that was one, 
treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So to the extent that uh, that my story of, uh, of crashing behind alcohol and uh, working my way back and continuing to do things to necessary to stay sober, um, if that helps someone else, then I'm really happy. You mentioned your parents. Uh, you were raised by a teacher and a librarian outside of Los Angeles, or I guess in Los Angeles. What was your childhood like? Um, it was uh, lots of fun. I had two brothers. Um, we traveled a lot uh, in, in the car. Um, I had sort of two different types of childhood. One was that my grandpa ran a place called Hillcrest Country Club. And that was where all the movie stars and comedians hung out in Los Angeles in the 50s. So um, you'd have to be a little older to know these names, but it was Groucho Marx, uh, George Burns, Jack oh, sure. Danny, yeah. Danny Kay, and so... Um, those are the, for people listening I, that don't know, those are huge. Those are heavy hitters back then. I would sit on my grandpa's lap while he played gin rummy and George Burns uh, and my grandfather took me to my first baseball game. So it was a different sort of childhood in that I sat on Marilyn Monroe's lap and I had a, uh autographed Elvis Presley guitar. But my father turned away from the restaurant business and wanted to teach kids. So we lived a very normal life. Um, but uh, my dad made sure we were exposed to all sorts of things. And uh, I remember going to Disneyland the very first year it opened back in 1955. And, um, but we had traveled like 47 states. So, um, and, and books were a big thing in my house. So, I read a lot. We loved movies. We loved games. Um, and uh, my dad actually had a club called the Muddenhead Club where we operated with Robert's Rules of Order. And one of the people was president and one of them was vice president. We had a sergeant at arms. And we learned how to sort of pass resolutions and operate within a system. So I was pretty hardwired early to go make a difference in the world. You were hardwired to make a difference. By the way, that's unbelievable. That's the first time even the research I've, I've done about you. I had no idea about your grandfather. What was it like to be exposed to stars like that at such a young age? Well, um, it's only in retrospect that I really got the whole thing. It was just that was George Burns was just a friend of my father. We actually <coughs> cut a record, Groucho Marx and his granddaughter, uh, Melinda, and my grandpa and myself, to Annie, get your gun, anything you can do, I can do better. But <coughs> that, um, uh, uh, and I was on things like Art Linkletter's house party as uh, one of the kids. So there was that part, but then there was very normal growing up in, in Los Angeles in the 50s. And it sounds to me like here you are, you're a guy that's kind of being maybe, you know, obviously you probably didn't know it or not, but you're being kind of nurtured and brought up to, to not only make a difference in the world, but also you talk about learning to pass resolutions. And, and that is, I would guess, maybe some of those skills you use now or, or, or used back then and now. <laughs> doing contracts and things like that. And that's, that's a double-edged sword, I think, of skills. What I learned was that the most important skill in life is listening. It's being able to draw out another human being and cut below the surface with their understanding their unique value system, their unique priorities, and getting below surface responses so that you can ultimately understand someone's um, deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams. And doing that allows you to see the world the way another person can see it and through their eyes, and then you can navigate your way through life gracefully. And, and for, for you, as, as you were navigating life early on, was there, was there drinking, uh, like as a kid or in high school? No, I had uh, uh, 
Um, and there wasn't really alcohol in our house. So I had no, no exposure at all till I got to college. And you went to college, where'd you go to UCLA for a year and then you transferred to Berkeley and you start to really make right. it, you were and you start to really make a difference. The things that your parents instilled in you. Now you're starting to get, be a part of a lot of causes on campus and, and sort of a transformational force. Well, I'm student body president at Berkeley when Ronald Reagan's governor and the war in Vietnam is going on. So all the counterculture, long hair and tie dye and, and rock music and herbal substances and every other change that occurred in the late sixties, we were sort of at the vortex of it. And, um, I learned everything I needed to learn by being student by president and then president of law school and the rest of it. It was all political skills. It was all how to get along with people and find consensus and the rest of it. And everything I needed to learn about negotiating, I learned from interacting with Governor Reagan because he would crack down on the campus and um, I would have to defend it. So you would have interaction with, with Ronald Reagan? I did. Um, we we uh, had sort of a showdown in front of the Board of Regents one day where um, um, he said to me, weren't you the same Mr. Steinberg who was sitting in front of troop trains in Oakland in 1960? And I said, well, Governor, um, I was close to 10 years old, so I was much closer to playing with uh, toy trains and sitting in front of troop trains, but that shows your usual adherence to veracity and fact <laughs> so that got it going and uh it was funny later on he gave me a commendation in the white house but uh it wasn't all that funny uh when we were uh demonstrating now you became in a real, a real attractive uh person on campus i think uh is it true that you were you had steve barkowski was on your hall the, the a quarterback so I was going to law school and I was an undergraduate. Um, I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm. And law school, and law schools at Berkeley, real quick, law schools at Berkeley? Yes. Okay. I was called Gold Hall then. Uh, it was Berkeley's law school. And um, so I'm living in a dorm sort of as the RA or dorm counselor. And they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students is the quarterback, Steve Barkowski. I mean, we had other interesting people. It was only 150 guys, but we had a young guy named Steve um, who, who went down to Apple and Steve uh, Wozniak. Together. Steve Wozniak yeah. was in our dorm. We had uh, uh, Brian Maxwell who went out and developed and created the company Power Bar. Um, we had Rob Swenson, who was another all-pro football player. But anyway, I'm out of – four years later, I'm out of law school. Bartkowski's become the first pick in the first round of the draft, and uh, he asked me uh, to represent him. So he'd and already he'd was, already been taken first? Yes. Okay, and then he said, hey, and, well, you negotiated my contract. Yes. And you got him, what, the biggest deal? There, in- well, there had been at that point. And, um, uh, but remember how rudimentary and different those days were. Someone could say, um, we don't deal with agents and a franchise or a general manager could just slam the phone down and there was no guaranteed right of representation. So, um, it was a little different and, when we got to Atlanta, I saw how dominant athletes were in as the movie stars and celebrities. So I thought, well, if they would go back to their and retrace their roots to the high school uh, community that helped shape them, set up a scholarship fund, boys or girls club, if they would then go on to um, the college and and perhaps set up a scholarship like Steve. Uh, Young did at BYU or Warren Moon at, at Washington or Troy Aikman at UCLA or Edron James at Miami. Um, they could bond with those alums and maybe find mentors, but they'd stay close to that community. And then at the pro level, we challenged each of them to find 
some cause in their life they'd like to tackle. And um, so we would set up a charitable foundation with the leading political figures, business figures, and uh, community leaders in that city. And there were programs like Work Done, the former running back of Atlanta, who um, put the 175th single mother and her family recently into the first home they'll ever own by making a down payment and having Home Depot, you know, outfit it. Um, so it's athletes changing lives. And um, so that's been the fundamental hallmark of, of the practice uh, in the last 46 years. Do you think that's what made you so attractive, the clients? I mean, young guys like a guy like Drew Bledsoe or somebody who is from a small town and they come, they come to the big city and they meet you and you're, you're sort of disarming. You were California cool, you were laid back, and you had different values probably than the other agents. I think, again, listening is so important so that instead of staying on the surface, I have always taken the time to not so much talk, but to try to draw out. Men don't share quite as easily. <laughs> I'm sure some of your uh, uh, female listeners will will attest to that. They're deep emotional feelings, right? So you have to draw it out and um, put together, represent a player holistically where you really get him or her and lay out something that stretches from being a role model, the path to the draft, to a first contract, to a long career, hopefully to the Hall of Fame, and then on into second career. So preparing them for whether it's business or coaching or, or media, but it's, it's dealing with the whole person and um, seeing all the ways you can enhance their life. Well, you, your life starts to get enhanced because you start to, you really kind of explode as an agent when, when you get Steve Young and you get him a huge deal in the USFL. Was that heady stuff for you as a young man? Uh, you, you were, what, in your late 20s, early 30s? Um, well, it's... <clears throat> having been student vice president of Berkeley was about as public and high-profile. It's hard to relate to those times with Walter Cronkite used to start the evening news from Berkeley, California, from Ann Arbor, Michigan, from Madison, Wisconsin, from Columbia, New York, the campuses are playing. So I had sort of had that exposure, and I knew how to uh, bifurcate my life so that there was the internal part of it, which was about friendship and real relationships, and then everything public, I, I had the perspective that it it was not real to a certain extent because newspaper clippings and fame and fortune and all that was really sort of fleeting and transient and uh, it's not your real life. And you were able to hang on to, to what, to what was real. And then as, as your career progressed, I guess alcohol started to come into play. I guess, I guess it was down the road really. Um, it came, it, it, came, it came late because I was one beer Steinberg um, <laughs> and sort of joked about because, you know, I would drink a half a beer and start to get a little buzz and, you know, I'd back off. And it wasn't, and remember, we were also a generation that had a close acquaintanceship with uh, herbal substances, right? Yeah, well, so, I, I, I get uh, the drift, yeah. Uh, so, so uh, it was not a big deal, and I wanted to be functional, so I didn't want to lose control. And uh, so to evolve from that point to where I ended up was stunning, but it, it certainly didn't happen overnight. You know, I was highly functional. I was highly functional uh, uh, till the end at work. I just was missing days, and... Uh, um, but at that point in my life, uh, we, we were doing football. Eventually, we did 64 first-round draft picks and the first pick in the first round eight different years. 
half the starting quarterbacks. Eventually, 12 of the players got to the Hall of Fame, and baseball had a big practice <clears throat> with stars like C.C. Um, Sabathia and, uh, and uh, Pudge Rodriguez and uh, Sean Green and Matt Williams. And then in basketball, I had some high draft picks. And then I did boxing with uh, Lennox Lewis and Oscar De La Hoya yeah. and the U.S. team at the World Cup. And, and, and all the way along, the athletes were doing <clears throat> amazing things in the world. And um, achievement was my drug. Um, you know, achievement. And it was so exciting that I didn't really need um, – uh, to to be intoxicated a whole lot. Yeah, you that met. You, you met. Yeah, and you mentioned you were kind of in the in the Disneyland of drinking. I mean, you were at your Super Bowl party was always the best. I I knew that even back when I worked for for Mike George and SFX. Like that Saturday Super Bowl party was the, you know, you, everybody wanted to get into that. And uh, when you say the Disneyland of drinking, what do you, what do you mean by that? That. Um, everywhere that alcohol was an integral part of, of the whole world I lived in that people went out for a beer there were endless amounts of banquets endless amounts of events and generally they'd have top drawer alcohol um, uh, everywhere and, and people would get drunk and then they'd laugh about it the next morning. And, um, so you walk into commissioner's party, there's like a big ice sculpture with vodka going down it. Right. There's, there's, uh, when you walked into the commissioner's party, they would hand you a drink. Um, as you walked in with scantily clad waitresses uh, giving you drinks, um, everybody drank. And um, it, it was just a normal part of it. Remember that marijuana was against the law, but alcohol was legal. Yeah. And so um, early on, I realized I didn't have a ton of alcohol tolerance and um, we start to get buzzed with the first drink. So, um, you know, I had the normal experiences where, well, I get drunk and, and, but wake up the next morning, highly functional. And that whole pattern didn't change until much later. When did it start to become an issue? I mean, you've got this roster of clients. It's a who's who of the NFL. And so I got to believe that's sort of empowering. And uh, I, I got to believe it's probably easier to shake off a hangover when you're going and closing a deal for, for Troy Aikman as opposed to the guy who's living under the bridge. But when did it, when did it really start to evolve? There came a period <clears throat> where... Um, I started to feel powerless. My two sons were diagnosed with uh, an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which starts with night blindness and leads to narrowing of the visual field. Um, and when I was drinking, I was drinking a little bit late at night when my marriage wasn't going that well. But that would be at 10 or 11. I wouldn't spend, and I never drank during the day. Um, but that happened. My father died a long death, uh, from cancer, um, which well, he had been a rock in my life. And, um, we lost a house to mold. Uh, we live in a beach city, Newport beach, and we had to knock it to the ground. And eventually I felt like Gulliver, Tethered down by Lilliputian. <laughs> Gulliver's Travels? Okay, yeah. Right, with them sticking their little forks in me. I felt like I didn't have the capacity to protect my kids. My marriage was starting to um, break up, and I turned to um, I turned to alcohol. And, you know, I started drinking every night. 
Um, and But it was still manageable until I broke up with my wife and I went um, in 2006 into my first apartment I'd had like in years. And all of a sudden there wasn't a structure around me. So there was nothing. I found out it was uh, actually uh, legal to do a very strange thing. It was legal to drink alcohol while the sun was still out. <laughs> and uh, which was not something, you know, I, I had done. And so all of a sudden living on my own depressed and all the rest of it, 2006, seven, eight, nine, and uh, 10 became um, years in which, which I was struggling. And I, I tried to go to some rehabs and um, I would master uh, the knowledge about the dysfunctional brain and I would uh, uh, understand uh, brain chemistry, dysfunctional family, all of it, um, except I couldn't stop drinking. And Were you, um, were you trying to so stop I, when you went to those rehabs? Were you trying to stop or were you just kind of trying to put a plug in the jug for a little bit? In retrospect, uh, in retrospect, I was a really good student and very enthusiastic, you know, when I was in uh, rehab. But um, whatever my internal problem was, I just wasn't getting the fact that I was actually an alcoholic. I wasn't getting the fact that my brain had changed in a way that made me unable to stop after I had the first drink and that um, I was in the control of alcohol. When you, just back up with me a little bit. You you have this rough court case with, with David Dunn, right? He takes a lot of your clients. Um, was that part, I mean, was there drinking behind that too? I mean, because you were, it's very public how successful you were. Uh, you, you can't say it enough. Well, I mean, you well were, it, funny thing is, when, when my pattern was different, when times were tough, like when people left our firm and the rest of it, then I toughened up. Um, but it was in the aftermath of that. Um, I had these core values and I tried to run a business like that. And all of a sudden, um, I'm involved w w with betrayal and with, um, uh, things that sort of broke my heart. I just couldn't believe people would actually act that way. It's like um, and that resentment starts. Um, right. And so, of course, there was woe is me, woe is me, but we still had uh, a, a great practice. All through this, we're having athletes raise money for charity. I'm doing a, um, a uh, the Secretary of State, Madeline Albright, and I put together a program to take minefields out of uh, um, in Cambodia and Angola and Mozambique. I'm doing, um, I trained 10,000 young people in the fight against um, um, hate, but there start to be days I miss where, where I start drinking early in the day and all of a sudden I can get an alcohol content up that was much different than having a few drinks late at night. And, and much higher. And, you know, we're clever um, as alcoholics. And uh, so there were people who tried to help me. I mean, they would take my um, wallet away. They would take my keys to my car away. And I'd, you know, be alone in my condo. Um, and, uh, but that didn't stop me from drinking. I mean, I would um, uh, go down to the to the grocery store and I'd say, you know me, I'm in here all the time. I forgot my wallet at home. And all of a sudden they allow me to leave with a big bottle of vodka. Um, and so our cleverness and stealthiness, you know, is the undoing, right? So uh, one that people didn't try to help me, they did. When you, uh, you know, you had so many players that you represented in so many different sports and, and walks of life. Did you ever have, and I'm not asking for names, but I got to assume there were people who bottomed out with due to drugs and alcohol. 
And and there had to be a plan that I would think you would probably institute because you were probably as close to these guys or girls as anybody. Did you did you ever think about that when you were kind of bottoming out? Like, man, like I remember when such and such was having problems and we tried to, you know, did you have a better understanding for addiction? I understood it, but it was like um, I didn't understand how transformed my own brain had become. So, yes, I understood it. Look, I went to some of the best rehabs in the country. I went to one that was uh, $10,000 a day and was near Harvard and was the most sophisticated uh, deal there was. Um, I just, I could not stop drinking until the end. And then I got to the point where I realized that I was missing too many days. Um, and, um, I finally broke denial, shut down my business, gave it to the younger agents, went, um, uh, shut down my condo and went back um, in 2010 to live with um, my parents. And I had been reduced to um, sitting on my dead father's bed. And the um, only thought I had is where can I find more vodka? The world looks different behind the handlebars of a rat electric bike. Grabbing takeout looks less like greasy styrofoam boxes and more like a cross-town adventure. Ride shares look less like piling into the back of a car and more like grabbing fresh air with your friends. And commuting can even start to look like the best part of your day. That's because with Rad, the world is what you make of it, not what it makes of you. See for yourself with a 14-day free trial. Find your fun at radpowerbikes.com. And my life had been reduced to that point. Um, so, and you got, and you got, I mean, uh, and you've been, you've been open about this. I'm not breaking any news, but you got, you know, a DUI in 1996, which was okay. Uh, every, you know, whatever. Um, but then, you know, you get a public intoxication in, in, in LA or I guess somewhere in Southern California as, as the bottom is, is dropping out. And again, for me, just following, I'm like, man, Lee Steinberg's walking around drunk and uh, were the police were people like, wow, like it, it must've been a. A, a, a tough time. Yeah, I mean, those, um, but I wasn't doing a lot of walking around. Uh, uh, I had the misfortune of, um, of uh, being pretty visible. Um, I was mostly an isolator, um, so I'd be drinking by myself in, in my situation. But anyway, I'm at my parents' house, and... Finally, I had an epiphany that I wasn't a starving peasant in Darfur. I wasn't, um, didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany. I wasn't, didn't have cancer. So what excuse did I really have not to live up to the admonitions of my dad and mom? And um, I was taken off to sober living there was an indigent rehab place in Orange County, and they didn't have a bed. So I had the ignominious distinction of not being able to get into um, to, uh, an indigent rehab. Yes, indigent rehab. But anyway, I went off to a. Um, uh, a sober living house in Orange County. So when you got sober, and, you, you, you went, to, you didn't go like the, the, the time it worked, which is just interesting, right? Like it, it takes what it takes, but you, you ended up going to a sober living, not, not a posh rehab. You were at, at a nuts and bolts. Sober no, I, living. Went, I went, I went straight into a sober living house. And, um, and what I said to myself was this, I'm going to not do, anything in the world but be a good father and be sober. But I'm going to put sobriety first and being a good parent first. And um, there's all those times where you will say to people while I was drinking, um, I've got it this time. This time's different. This time 
I really, you know, this time I mean it and all the rest of it. And it never amounted to anything. So um, you weren't intentionally lying. That was your uh, belief at that point. But alcohol was convincing me that um, distorted thinking. So I went um, I went there and, and I said, I'm not going to say a thing to anybody about the state of my sobriety. I'm just going to stack up days and do the work. So, you know, I... Uh, Found a home group. I went into, started working at 12 steps. I got a sponsor. Um, and, um, uh, I just did whatever they told me. What, and, what made it? Um, cause, cause that's what they, that's what happened to me too. I mean, I, I was willing to go to any lengths. What do you think brought you to that? To, cause that's a, that's a spiritual decision. You know, whatever you consider a God or whatever else. What, what do you think brought you to that, to that move, to that decision? Every time I thought I hit a bottom, there was a lower bottom, right? And I was so productive in work and everything that, that a lot of people were not intentionally, but enabling me to not confront it. And I, but when I got to the point where, um, I'm sitting on my deceased father's bed, and my life has been narrowed to a search for vodka. Um, it's just, like I said, I had a bit of an epiphany um, and just n knew that that can't be what I had been destined to do. That wasn't <laughs> going to be the end of the life arc. And, and fortunately, I've been brought up by parents who were really optimistic and um, we always thought everything would work out okay and um, so faced with the detritus and destruction that I had um, um, I had to make a decision and be able to somehow I, I heard from people who had were sober that there was light at the end of the tunnel and that's what I needed um, to know that there was hope. I mean, there's people that you motivate in sports by kicking them in their derriere. And there's people that you motivate by telling them that if they do this, there's going to be a great result and everything's going to work out. And I'm the latter. So if there was a pony filled, uh, I go walk into a barn, the pony filled with defecation. I'm, I, the barn's filled with defecation. I'm sorry. I, I'm sure there's a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm sure. And that was the hardest thing because, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't aware of, of how I self-destructed. But the point was, could I find hope? And I found hope through a unique fellowship. And, um, and they were very basic which was surrender, find a higher power, get a sponsor, uh, find a home group, work the steps in order, um, and then be a service to other people. And so, uh, you know, read a very special book. And so... What started, um, Lee, what started to happen to you when you started to go to those meetings? What, what kind of feeling did you get? Describe that for people. Um that I wasn't alone with this, um, that I was stunned at the amount of people who would be in a meeting. It's like, wow, this whole thing existed. <laughs> and I had no awareness of it. It was like, really? So once you got over the novelty of the fact there are all these people in a room, then, um, um, then I started to get support. And people reached out, and I started to listen to things people shared from the uh, podium. And I, things like halt if you're hungry, angry, lonely, um, uh, tired, tired. That doesn't you know, the logical uh, response to those things isn't drinking. And I think the most powerful thing I saw was people with who had lost children 
who were suffering from cancer, who had all these problems that objectively were so much worse than what I had dealt with. And they didn't drink over it. Um, in other words, they, those things about my kids and my father and the rest of them, I saw those kinds of experiences happening to other people all the time. But they had found a way of life where they didn't have to zone out. They didn't have to let powerlessness um, uh, govern. They had, they had found uh, a simple program to to deal with it, and it inspired me. Um, and I felt, you know, a sense of closeness. And I didn't have a lot of money then, and, you know, so people would take me to lunch or they would do different things, and there was a lot of kindness. And... Um, um, and, and a real sense of community. And I'd always been involved in organizations and community groups. And uh, uh, there, there began to be a routine and consistency to what I did, which was going to meetings every day. Um, and, um, uh, and I found community and camaraderie. And I mostly went to men's stags meetings, so there wouldn't be any um, diversion from, yeah. from the focus. And um, um, and that was it. And then I got real busy. I went to, there was a, a thing in Orange County called the Orange County Convention, so I went to that. I went to the Desert Pow Wow. Uh, so you dove, you dove in, you really dove in and that's, yeah. yeah and that's oh, how yeah. you get the magic. I, I ended up going to the national convention, international convention in San Antonio that year. If there was any book to read, I read it. <laughs> if there was any, any, uh, any modality that anybody was trying or doing, I, I threw myself into it just like I was going back to college and said, you know what? I'm gonna not say a whole lot. I'm gonna listen a whole lot, and uh, these people know something I don't know, and have mastered something I don't know. And I better be a sponge and soak up all the knowledge they have and everything that potentially could be. So I made a huge <laughs> number of friends, and since I wasn't working or anything, you know, I I bought cards for people's birthdays. I um, you know, put together a, a, a huge group of, of, of friends. So I surrounded myself with a, with a big support group and, and lived in sober living for nine months. And did that kind of carry you, you know, like that sounds like sobriety, I think can be kind of a tailwind. Did that move you back? You know, whether, whether it's the spirituality, the power of the group being sober, did that move you back towards becoming an agent again? My only concern was to master the steps of um, and to adopt a structure that would allow me to stay sober. And I had no other ambitions than that. And so step by step, I started to aggregate days. And um, soon I wasn't counting days but months. And uh, eventually you evolved to getting the years. But, um, um, but I had, had that structure. And then my next priority was two of my, my young, young, young daughter and, and my oldest son stayed with me. Well, my youngest son didn't talk to me the whole time he was at USC film school. And, um, was this cause of the drinking? He, yes, because he, he didn't know that father and, uh, he knew a father who was an expert, always knew the answer was steady, was, uh, consistent. And then I wasn't. And so, um, you know, I felt a lot of guilt over that. And, um, so, uh, that was really key to me. So I just worked on that. And then when I got two or three years into it, I started thinking, um, and I didn't want to go back in the world and fail again. I didn't want to start to build relationships and do those things. Um, 
if I didn't have a firm handle on, I mean, I always think of myself as a bun in the oven. I'm cooking. I'll probably be cooking till I die. Um, so I'm not a finished product, but um, at least I have uh, a skill set that enables me to to function. And then, as you know, eventually the cravings go away, and um, it's very difficult when they're there because they're irrational and they come from the amygdala or the lizard part of your brain they they aren't you know conscious they're just wired that way so i wanted to get to the point that the cravings had gone away and they did and uh eventually um i found some um people that wanted to invest in a new company i do uh, they happened to be a group of oil men in, in Houston. And in late 2013, we put together a, a new company. And um, and I knew I'd face all sorts of challenges. Um, and you have to be realistic with yourself. So I thought through, well, you couldn't stay sober. How do we know you'll stay sober? I thought through, well... Um, you didn't do a good job managing your own money. How can you do a great job for us? I thought through, um, uh, you know, you've been out of this for five or six years as an active agent. How do how do we know you still have contacts and all the rest of it? You're still relevant, or you know, you're you're fairly old. <laughs> um, you're 61 you, when you got sober, you, right? 60. I was 61 when I got sober. Yeah. So if we if, if we count the years until that my son would play, you know, if we had 12 years, you're going to be old. You know, we you'd be sitting on a park bench with drool coming out of your mouth. Um, so um, anyway, because I don't have a divine right to represent players, I just have um, um, I just have uh, uh, to be in that position so parents have the right to ask whatever questions they did. But anyway, so so we got started in really in 2014 and uh, um, and I got an office and, and I got some staff and eventually I was joined by a younger lawyer named Chris Cabot and, um, and then my son uh, joined on. And the big breakthrough was in 2016, where we signed a first-round quarterback from Memphis named Paxton Lynch, who was the pick of the Denver Broncos. And you know, I, re I read so about that. Short. I read about that, Lee, and he talks about you know he was so open about you and the connection he had with you and how how you presented to him, hey, here's here's my backstory, here's you know here's the deal. And uh, did you find that so that, that work in twelve steps kind of enables you to do that to people? Um, just the, yes, the whole, the whole concept of it. In other words, this is my past. This is what I did to myself. This is, and then again, only talked about the years. Um, didn't make any representations as to the fact I can guarantee you that I'll face over anything. It just, um, it, all I thought was important was action was, was wasn't what was coming out of my mouth. It was the fact that I continued to stack days and then months and then years. And, um, so I was really open with the people. And fortunately, a lot of the people in the world of sports are pretty accepting. Um, and it, so we signed Paxton and then the next year was Patrick Mahomes. And then, um, you know, it's built from there. I, I got a couple more things and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you out of here. But when you're talking to this, to these these guys, uh, and you're connecting with them, right? You're listening to them. Do you feel like recovery has almost made you better at your job? Well, 
it certainly has made me more understanding of how close the edge is between productive life and and um, the apocalypse. And um, I never believed that something like that would happen to me <clears throat> or that I'd let it happen or that I'd be responsible for it. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think there's a level at which <clears throat> the whole process creates more understanding. I was never very judgmental in the first place. Some of the lessons that I relearned in Alcoholics Anonymous were lessons that came out of my upbringing. Um, in other words, you know, uh, uh, trying not to have resentments, trying um, <clears throat> to, to make sure that if I ever had wronged anybody, I would chase them down the street to apologize. In other words, those were things taught to me um, by my parents. And <clears throat> luckily, I came out of a house that where if you spilled the milk, you weren't in big trouble. If you spilled the milk and lied about it and denied it, then you were in trouble. So, um, in other words, it was the sort of thing where there was an understanding. You, we don't expect you to be perfect. We expect you to be honest and open, right? So I had a lot of that, but it was um, I had just lost my bearings and was so far away from. I was so self-absorbed and so far away from that that um, I that that yes, working steps helped put that connection together with what I already knew. How active are you today? I mean. Pat Mahomes, you kind of you humbly mentioned about Pat Mahomes. That's a four hundred and fifty million dollar plus deal uh, that you had a huge hand in putting together for this this guy, and uh, he's probably the best football player in the world. How do you stay grounded uh, in sobriety? Are you still active in twelve steps? Oh, absolutely. So I just came back from a uh, spiritual retreat that I've done. Uh, for 12 years, and at that we go through the 12 steps, and we go away to a mission for three days, and all you're thinking about is the group and and the rest of it. Uh, and um, I go to regular meetings, and um, uh, I keep in touch with uh, with the whole group. Um, uh, and basically, the core of my life has stayed the same for the last 12 years. In other words, I'm um, pretty much living in the same place. I'm doing the same things. And um, it's, uh, um, you know, I'm close to my sponsor. And um, um, and, and what that does, it, think about it this way. If you would dedicate like an hour a day to maintaining sobriety, you would have complete freedom for the other 23 hours, right? Yeah. So it's a pretty good trade. It's a really good trade. Uh, when you start, you were divorced when you got sober. I always find this interesting. How, how does how does Lee Steinberg start to date again in sobriety, or or, or does he? Uh, what's that like? Well, I didn't do anything for the first uh, few years. You know, I have random experiences, but um, uh, I had had a wonderful girlfriend who I thought I was going to marry um, right before it, but. She broke up with me, which was another stimulant. Um, and um, um, using the same skills, listening a lot. Someone once told me, if you want to stay married or stay in a relationship, when you get home, um, ask your girlfriend or wife or what, what um, their day was like, and then just sit and listen. And don't try to fix everything and don't try to, to um, respond to everything. Just listen because people want to be heard. And um, uh, clearly I'm much, much better at relationships than I was. How, what do you tell people that come in 
to to meetings and and can't get a day and they let's say they ask you hey how how do you do it what do you tell them I told them that I set the Guinness Book of Records for most relapses. And uh, so I understand. And um, that every day is a new day. And you have a chance to, to get it right or get better every day. So don't, you know, focus on on the failures or put them together that you are a failure. You, you know, you have a changed brain. And you are not in control of that anymore. But there is a solution. And um, so just a lot of love and compassion and, you know, understanding that all of us who have this disease have a commonality. And um, my responsibility is to help people who are still struggling. So I've got people across the country who, when I post on social media, you know, how many years or days I have, you know, they interact on different forms of social media. So um, I have sort of a, a, a large group of people I relate to across the country who who are following my journey as I'm following theirs. Yeah, I'm one of them. I mean, I love when you say, and I, I, I stole your line, you, you, you would post a 10 years on the sunny side of the street. I was like, that is... I like that. And that's it. That's what I tell people too, because it really is the sunny side of the street. It's good living. Right. And you want to be, you know, somewhat subtle and, um, and people who get what that is will be helped by it. And people who don't, well, they don't need to help. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing with your, with Steinberg sports, as far as with, with, with the name image and likeness, where do you see that going? <clears throat> I think it's, revolutionizing the way players are compensated. We signed the quarterback Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma, who, uh, for name, image, and likeness, who I think is as talented a quarterback as there is, and someone named Malik Willis from Liberty. Sure. And uh, so basically you're branding and marketing, and then you're you're taking a look at what um, – Revenue you can accrue, but there's a balance because um, um, uh, there's a a balance to not creating so much pressure on a young man. Um, Like quarterback Alabama has not even played it down yet, and he's already got a million dollars worth of deals. Yeah, that's a lot of and pressure if you go out and you flop or a couple of games. Now the first time you throw an interception, are people going to boo? So, you know, you have to make sure that the engine that pulls the train is success, you know, as a student and, and, and on the athletic field so you don't expose someone to ridicule. How much? What's the most you think a kid can get out of this stuff financially? Oh, we could get up into the millions. It's the primary beneficiaries are college quarterbacks from high-profile programs with big lung bases. But you could also see women, if it had started earlier, all the women in the gymnastics would have been big beneficiaries. Um, But, you know, there are programs that play – Football is the most popular sport now, and there's programs that play on national TV all the time. And there's quarterbacks who succeed or other players who succeed earlier. And, uh, you know, I think it's a big enhancement and long overdue. Where do you think it all it all goes? Is there, are, we, are we still working uh, with an NCAA 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Since uh, college sports simply need a big TV contract, and um, the NCAA is going to have to struggle to be relevant um, because the com- the concept of pure amateurism <clears throat> has been gone, but realistically, it's been gone for a long time. So. You see what the SEC is doing, 
and they added Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, they've got the strength, and the big colleges have the strength. <clears throat> they don't really need an NCAA. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for your time, Lee. Any anything else you want you, you want to get out there? Anything? No, if you're out there and you're struggling, and you're hopeless and depressed and confused. Um, I was there and there is help available and um, there's unique fellowships and 12 step programs and you can come back and uh, get your life back and have a happy life. All right, Lee, thank you so much. I'm going to send, this will be up next Thursday. I'll send a link to Michaela. If you, if you would ever want to listen, take it easy. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. If you have a quick second, I want you to go ahead and, and give back a little bit uh, to what has so freely given to you. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding, but I would love for you to go to the Rogue Media website and go ahead and click on a survey at the top. It's R-O-G-U-E, that is Rogue, the word media, network, roguemedianetwork.com. Take the survey. Come on, you don't have to pay anything for this. Take the survey. Thank you. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Podcast.